Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and today I have a special guest. I always say that every week, don't I? But this week, it really is true. This is somebody you have not heard from before and a type of nursing that we haven't even talked about on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I have Deanna with me. Hello, Deanna. Hi. Hi, Tina. So excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. Deanna is a registered nurse, a former uh, case manager who decided to take her knowledge of case management and turn it into a business. She's an author. She has created, she's an entrepreneur. She's created a a business that actually helps to educate nurses on how to become a case manager, right? Did I say that right? (laughs) You did. You said it exactly right. Thank you. Perfect. Well, I was really excited when you reached out to say that you enjoy the show and that you would like to be on the show. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I have not done a case manager show and we're releasing this episode. If everything goes the way it's supposed to, (laughs) it should be case management week this week. It should be Monday night or Monday morning and case management week. So happy case management week to all the case managers out there. Yes. Happy case management week. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to, of course, we, it's going to be a typical good nurse, bad nurse episode. We have a little news story we're going to talk about. We have a true crime, bad nurse story. And then we also have a good nurse story. And they're all great stories that we have to tell. It's going to be a really interesting show. So first, let's just talk about our news story that we found. This is uh, about a hospital. And I tried to kind of like the since we are, it's case management week, I was trying to find stories that sort of tied into case management a little bit. It's kind of hard to find things of stories, especially like a true crime story about a case manager, but but even like good nurse stories about case management, because that's not exactly the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a news story is not typically going to say or address someone as a case manager. They're probably just going to say nurse. It's hard to kind of find stories. But I think this sort of ties into it. This story about this hospital at the University of Maryland. So basically what's happened here is the hospital had to come out and apologize because it, it discharged a patient in, in 30 degree weather wearing a hospital gown, nothing but a hospital gown. She did have socks, but no shoes. And like I said, it was 30 degree weather across the street from the hospital. uh, A man was getting off work in the evening. He is a, a psychotherapist and he sees the woman in this thin hospital gown and socks, cold. And he also saw security sort of kind of leaving her there and walking away and it was near the bus stop. So he decided he was going to record it and he got it on video. He was appalled by the response he got from the security guards when he asked about it and appalled at the, the just that they would release someone from the hospital in that condition, in that weather. And it just went viral. And everybody, people all over the country are just absolutely outraged over it. Yeah, rightly so. Yeah. Well, it's kind of one of those things. And you working, having worked in case management, I know that you understand this, that we obviously can't, people come into the hospital in horrible situations and they're, you know, they're, they've got their lives just completely, whether it's their own fault or not. Sometimes it's, it's they're struggling with mental health issues Sometimes they just have, they're just absolutely down on their luck. They just can, you know, have lost a job or they've gone through some sort of turmoil that they're not able, you know, they don't have a home. They don't have anywhere to go. They don't have clothes. And then they get sick and end up hospital. And those people, when they're discharged, 
they go back to that same situation. And, and, and I, it's not like the hospital can fix everyone's problems. But I do think that just out of human decency, they could have provided some clothing to for, for her to keep, be kept warm and not just dump her out at the bus stop like that. I mean, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think there's definitely a story behind this that we probably don't know. But yeah. even worst case scenario, you know, putting somebody out in 30 degree weather with nothing more than a hospital gown, we all know how flimsy those hospital gowns are. They're yeah. they're not going to keep you warm. You can practically read the newspaper through yeah, them. I mean, right. And I think it did say that they she they had a bag of belongings with her. So she may have even had some clothes and, you know, would it have been that hard to have her get dressed before they threw her out on the street. And like you said, we can't solve all their problems. You know, as a hospital, we're really just supposed to solve their medical issues. But on the other hand, there is something called a safe discharge plan. And anybody that's admitted to the hospital, which we don't know if she was admitted or just in the emergency room or outpatient, we don't really know the whole story. But if she was admitted to the hospital, there needs to be a safe discharge plan for that patient. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to find them a house or anything like that. But if they came from the streets, then obviously we can discharge them back to the streets. But we have to do so safely. And, you know, that means we need to make sure that they have that they're clothed properly for the environment, I would think at the very least. I I agree. I, I just think there has to be an answer to this situation. It cannot be, well, uh, I'm sorry, but it's time to go. You're ready to be discharged. And it's, a, it's, it's not our problem if you don't have clothes to wear. And many times people come into the emergency room or are brought into the hospital via EMS and whatever condition they were in, whether it's because of a medical uh, problem, they're confused, drugs, whatever it is, their clothing is so soiled to the point that they're really almost, you can't really use them. You could not put those clothes because they're completely uh, saturated in urine, feces, you know, because they're, they're sick and they don't even realize what they're doing. And those clothes, a lot of times they get put into bags and sealed up because you don't want to throw them away. And so you kind of put them in bags, seal them up, and they're there if the patient wants to take them. But they couldn't put, they wouldn't be able to put them back on. Right, right. Clearly. Right. No, and, and I, I definitely agree with that. But, you know, I actually had something not quite like this. When I was working many years ago as a nurse, I was in ICU and the nursing supervisor came up to our floor and she's like, hey, does anybody have, um, she needed clothes in a certain size. And my daughter just happened to be that size. And because the Walmart where we lived, it was a Sunday and they had blue laws. So she couldn't go to Walmart and buy clothes until 12 o'clock. The girl was in an auto accident and had been in a ditch. So she was wet and her clothes were muddy and they were Mm. cut off of her when she came into the ER. So I actually, it was the end of my shift and I went home and got some of my daughter's clothes and brought them in for her. So, I mean, there are, I mean, our nursing supervisor was awesome and she would have never let that little girl go home in a hospital gown. You know, even if that meant going and using her own money to buy clothes at Walmart, that was her initial plan until she realized that Walmart wasn't going to sell her clothes. And so then she was going from floor to floor asking, hey, who has a kid this age that we can borrow some clothes from or, you know, get donate some clothes. So, I mean, I know she went above and beyond and I know we can't always do that in every situation. And from the way that the video was, the woman, I think, was like just screaming and moving her hands. So she probably wasn't real cooperative. But again, we can't fix everything. And, you know, going back to 
case management, you know, every patient that comes into the hospital is supposed to have a safe discharge plan. Yeah. And we know that it was the security guards who took these people out. So we don't know if the person never talked to a case manager Mm -hmm. And maybe the hospital staff just got really frustrated with her and called security. We don't know the whole story behind that, but we are supposed to have a safeguard in place. Any hospital that is taking federal money is supposed to have a safe discharge plan for every patient who comes in. Yes, for sure. Uh, the, The article says that the man who was videotaping at some point, he stopped he just videotaped for just a you know, a few seconds or you know, not very long, maybe a minute or so and probably just thinking, I want to help this woman, but at the same time, I want people to know this happened. So there's kind of a line there where it's kind of, you've got to go for, well, stop videoing and help the woman. But then if you really want to influence change and you want to do something to bring awareness, you kind of do have to get it on video. So he he did that for just a, you know, a short few minutes or something. And then he called 911, an ambulance crew came and she actually was taken back into the hospital And he actually waited around a couple of hours just to make sure that they didn't just turn around and bring her right back out to the bus stop. And he actually heard her say thank you. He has, after the the video went viral, the woman's mother contacted him and he talked to her for like three hours. And she told him that um, her daughter was 22, that she's safe now and that she's being well cared for and that... The hospital had put her in a cab and sent her to a homeless shelter after, you know, after she was taken back in and, and after this happened. And which should have been probably done the first time. Well, yes, it's just it seems to be such a simple thing to do if a patient doesn't have a home to go to provide some transportation for them to get to a homeless shelter. At least you're give them some shoes, give them clothes, uh, something that, to wear. And then they you're at least providing clothing, transportation to where they can have some shelter for that night. And I mean, I, I wish there was a lot more that you could do, but that's just, to me, basic human decency. I don't know, just... She said that that her daughter had been missing, that she didn't know where her daughter was. And that was the reason that there was no family there for her. So the hospital is basically looking into it. The CEO came out and apologized publicly because it clearly, this is not good for a hospital. You have a video like this go viral and it just looks like you're, the hospital's job is to care for people and it just looks like they don't care about someone. And they would just put them out like, you know. And so the CEO came out and it made a public apology, also said that they're looking into it and looking into changing their policies, changing their discharge practices to try to keep this sort of thing from ever happening. They said it was an isolated incident. And I'm sure it was- We the, hope. Well, I, <laughs> it's isolated, I'm sure, in that there and hasn't that's been it. another one that's been videoed and put on Facebook that's gone viral. Right. But it's kind of hard to believe that this is the first time this happened and it happened to be caught on video. Yeah. Something obviously is not right here in their practice and the fact that it happened this one time when it was videoed. It's really, it's really hard for me to believe that it's never happened before, but that's, you know, of course they say it's an isolated incident. Of course, they're going to say that. And this article is interesting because it says that the issue of people being put out of hospitals it's something that's going on all across the country. This is not, but it's not something new, new. It says that the New York Times started writing about this issue in the 1870s. 
And it, it talked about how private hospitals were sending patients to the city's public hospital. So the, the, the patients would come in to a private hospital, not be able to pay. And then they would just, you know, send them on over to the public uh, hospital. And then in 1986, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act started, um, started and then emergency rooms were forbidden from denying hospital services just because a patient can't pay. And that's when all those signs started going up in the emergency room. You cannot be turned away just because you cannot pay. They have to transfer patients that can't stabilize. The Joint Commission, like you were saying, requires that there is a discharge plan. And But those policies do differ depending on the hospital. So that what they're calling patient dumping is something that goes on. It's just a matter, I guess, of how each hospital handles their, the dumping. The, uh, in Los Angeles, they really started cracking down on this about 10 years ago because they had all these incidences that were happening because homeless people would come into the hospital, be treated, and then they would just be released right back onto the streets in, in situations that were just horrible. And it says that Good Samaritan Hospital had to pay $450,000 because they were accused of dumping a homeless patient on the street after they were treated for a, um, a foot injury. Uh, there was a paraplegic man found crawling around Skid Row and Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center was accused of basically just putting him out there without a wheelchair and he's paraplegic. And they just put him on the street literally with no wheelchair way, way for him you know, to get around. They settled that one for a million dollars. And then in May, I think a wheelchair would have cost a lot less than a million dollars. Wouldn't it though? Wouldn't it? And I don't even know how you live with yourself, the person that, you know, was even able to do that. And then in May of 2017, apparently there were two Howard University police officers and their supervisor were recorded dumping a patient from a wheelchair outside of the hospital in Washington. And this was uh, reported in the Washington Post. And the video showed a male officer pushing a woman who was barefoot to a bus stop. And then two other officers were watching. And then she fell onto the sidewalk. So, I mean, this is just, it's kind of hard to imagine. But when one common thread that you pointed out when we were kind of talking about this before the show is that it seems like all of these incidences that we've sort of looked at have involved security getting the patient out of the hospital. Yes, and I'm glad that it's not a nurse pushing yeah. a patient out of a wheelchair because yeah. that would really just break my heart. But it does seem like we need some training on for the security staff on what to do because I know as nurses, we've had to call security sometimes for our patients, but we assume that security is doing the right thing and not just dumping them out well, that's, in the that's bad right. weather and I, I meant, you and know, here's without the thing. being properly clothed or... Yeah. Well, the thing is to me, I looking at it from a nurse, uh, from a nurse's point of view, who's still working at a a large hospital that is a, we treat a lot of people who are homeless. We treat a lot of people who come into the hospital and sometimes they don't want to even be there. Sometimes they come in because they were sick and they maybe were confused or they Maybe they were on, were on drugs and they passed out. But for whatever reason, they may not even want to be there. They were brought in. Then they realize once they start feeling better, right. they realize they're there. They want to leave. They might become combative. They may be just, um, just agitated and aggressive toward the staff members. And at some point, if they're discharged, and I'm not saying that that's what happened here at all. I don't 
we don't know the details of what really went on with the backstory with this patient. There are circumstances in which it I could have seen maybe it leading up to the patient being discharged, but never discharged in a thin hospital gown with socks on in 30 degree weather. That's just like, even if right. the patient was being aggressive, even if the patient was, but it, and it almost sounds like the patient was confused. So it, sometimes people are, are aggressive and, and, um, and agitated and, and abusive to staff because they're confused. So I just right. feel like there's... And why was she confused? Yeah. Did she have a metabolic problem going mm-hmm. on? Was it a medication reaction? You know, maybe she truly had a medical mm-hmm. need. That's why she was confused. Yeah, so I just I just feel like there needs to be some standards in place that we don't ever do, do this to anyone. If a patient is leaving the hospital, they need to have clothes, shoes, socks. They need to have a plan uh, in place for them to get to a safe place. There doesn't, this practice of just dumping them out at the bus stop and hope for the best, it, it just cannot continue. Yeah. And from the sound of it, it doesn't seem like she would be able to have even gotten on a bus. It doesn't sound like she had the ability to speak clearly and coherently enough to even, and did she have money to get on a bus? From what I know, you have to pay money to oh, get on a bus. Right. I don't think they I, just let you and, on. And maybe they gave her a voucher. Maybe they, uh, who knows whether they did or not, but that's giving, try, giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I do think that security <laughs> officers need more education. And I think this extends into the into police as well. I think that there's a, a major breakdown when it comes to security police and police officers with compassion, having doing their job with compassion and understanding that these that Absolutely. there are people with mental health issues that don't really understand what they're doing. They don't even they don't have a lot of impulse control. And so just kind of not caring and and um, and doing things like this, dumping patients off. It's not consistent with the normal values and mission statements of a lot of these large hospitals who say they're there to help patients and help there to heal people and, and that sort of thing. So I think, I feel like security, these security companies a lot of times are contracted out by the hospital and they need to get on board with the values, you know, of, of healthcare and caring for people. Absolutely. Just to kind of also before I move on, I do want to say that I respect security. I respect our police officers for being there to protect us. I'm in no way want to make it seem as though I don't appreciate what they do because I do. I appreciate if I feel threatened by a patient being able to call security and have them come up and intervene because it's scary. So I, I wouldn't. But we just want to be able to trust that when we call security and say, I'm having a problem with this patient, that they're not dumping them on the street. That's right. <laughs> with with a hospital gown on. So there has to be like a mutual trust there. And I agree. I am so glad that they're there and we have them as a backup. I think it's the hospital's responsibility yes. to make sure that they're properly trained in this is That's this exactly is the way right. we handle these situations. Hey Q, we're in a commercial, so we gotta talk fast. Let's do it. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this question, but have you ever signed up for a travel nurse agency and immediately regretted it? When you started getting all those texts and emails? Sadly, Tina, yes, I have. Okay, well, Trusted Health is a nurse travel agency that's going to change all of that. They make it simple and fast to go online and sign up, and then you immediately start seeing job opportunities that are tailored to your interests. And you can even see the pay. Sounds too good to be true, Tina. Well, the best part is there are no recruiters, no unwanted emails, and no unwanted text messages. No recruiters? Tina, I'm going to need some help. Where are we going to go if we have all these questions? Right, right. Well, 
they do have nurse advocates who are there to answer any questions. They'll help guide you through the process, but they're not commission-based, so they're not going to try to pressure you into taking a job that you don't want. Cool beans, cool beans. Well, tell them when to sign up because we're running out of time here. Okay, right, right. So, you guys, if you're even a little curious about travel nursing and you want to help support our little podcast here at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, please go to www.trustedhealth.com forward slash goodnurse and follow the steps to completing the sign-up process. It's real important that you complete the whole process for us to get credit, and we would really appreciate the support. Remember to be sure and put forward slash good nurse at the end of the URL when you go to their website so they'll know we sent you there. Trusted Health, they're not just an agency, they're a movement. All right. Well, I guess we can go into this bad nurse story. Yeah, it's just a a very unfortunate story, really. It's, It's just awful. This story is about a nurse who is from Idaho, in uh, Twin Falls, Idaho. And the nurse is uh, Crystal Kenny. And I don't know what type of nurse. It, I've never seen any reports that or articles that actually said what kind of nurse she is. It only said nurse, so not sure what kind of nurse. Could have been an LPN, could have been RN. Who knows? It, it, I never saw anything that even hinted to that. Only she's referred to as nurse in several different articles, but just never what, you know, where she worked or, or what kind of nursing she did. But she was dating a man um, by the name of Patrick Frazee. And of course, I say these names and they very rarely, <clears throat> very rarely do any of um, the names in these stories come across as like Smith or Jones or something that's so easy to say. It always has to be something that I look at and go, there's like three or four different ways I could say this name. <laughs> and I usually probably, I'm sure I picked the wrong way, but we're going to call him Patrick Frazee because I don't know how else to say it. So Crystal and Patrick had known each other for like 15 years. And you were saying that you saw in um, one article or one uh, video you were watching that they were high school sweethearts. Yeah, either high school or college sweethearts. So they had known each other for quite a while because I believe at the time this happened, she was 32. So they had known each okay. other for yeah, a long and, time. Um, one article that I saw said they had known each other for about 15 years and kind of dated off and on. So they weren't, it's not like they had dated for a solid 15 years, but they just sort of off and on right. dated, maybe just remained acquaintances over over that period of time. And then they when this did happen, they were romantically involved when this whole thing went down. So just recently, right before all of this happened, Crystal, our nurse, learned that Patrick had not only been involved uh, romantically with another woman, but actually was engaged to another woman and had a child with her just that previous year, just within the the year. And the child was like one year old when this happened. Her name was Kelsey Barreth. So Kelsey is our victim. And uh, just to try to give her, uh, just honor her a little bit and tell about her. She was born September 15th, 1989. She was an American pilot and a flight instructor and absolutely beautiful young woman. And so he was engaged to her. They were engaged. And in the meantime, he's kind of got this on again now relationship with with our nurse Crystal, uh, and then she finds out, oh, you're engaged and you have a daughter. So I'm sure she was probably really shocked about that. So Patrick starts telling Crystal that Kelsey was abusing their daughter. So according to Crystal, 
I mean, you can imagine how this conversation went down. And this is coming from the point of view. You're hearing it from from someone who's all who's telling uh, the story, and she has some motivation to spin things her way. So we're we're have, we're just basically telling what she said. But she said that Patrick told her that Kelsey was abusing their daughter. And I also want to say up front that there is no evidence whatsoever that that was true. No, it sounds to me like he got caught that he had this, it sounds like he got caught and then he was trying to kind of backspin and, you know, um, I need to get out of this relationship. She's abusing our daughter. And almost like the daughter was the victim and he needed Crystal to help him get out of this situation. Uh, that, that's how that's how I felt about it too. So Crystal says, uh, not only is he kind of telling her, my fiance, the mother of my child is abusing our daughter. He said he was actually afraid that she was going to hurt her so bad that she could even kill her. That's how he put it to Crystal. And he started trying to convince Crystal to kill Kelsey, the mother of his daughter. And again, there is no evidence whatsoever that Kelsey really was abusing his daughter. Crystal says that he would concoct these elaborate schemes of ways for her to kill Kelsey. So, and I, when I was reading these stories, because, you know, I, I kind of like read different articles and I'm just going, really? I can't even imagine you've got this boyfriend of yours who is giving you all these scenarios. Like maybe you could do it this way. Maybe you could do it this way. Well, not only that, he cheated mm-hmm. on you. He cheated on you for at least a couple of years if they have a, right. I think the daughter was what, a year old or something. So this has been going on for two years. He's cheating on you. He doesn't tell you he's cheating on you. And then you find and out, you believe and he's like, oh yeah, well maybe you, you believe can kill that. her. Yeah, that this is the best thing, that this guy who's cheating on you, now you not, not only do you still want to be with him, but you want to be with him bad enough that you would consider killing yeah, the person the mother that he's engaged to. of a one-year-old child. And could you... Yes. Mm-hmm, you're a nurse. And you're um, a nurse. <clears throat> if you are using your, you know, just logical thinking skills, your critical thinking skills, <laughs> which you have to have or you can't even graduate from nursing school. How are you going right. to seriously look at this situation and say, which one do I think is most logical? Is it more logical that the man who who I found out had been lying to me about being engaged, about having a child, that he's lying about his ex or his fiance abusing her daughter or is it more logical that this woman this young woman who's a pilot who seems to be well educated kind of seems to have her life together is actually abusing her one-year-old little girl does that make I mean if you had to pick between those two scenarios which one as as our nurse um, Crystal which one would it make more sense for Crystal to believe right and would you not ask him, well, did you hire a lawyer? Did you, you know, if you are seeing these signs of abuse, have you reported it? That would be what most normal people do when they feel that the other parent of their child is abusing them. They usually try to take some kind of an action to restrict that parent from seeing the child. They don't well, instantly go to exactly. murder. Exactly. I, I wonder why Crystal would not have been saying things like, what signs of abuse are you seeing? What are you... Where so if 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 you are so concerned that she actually could hurt her or even kill her, there has to be evidence. 
hide, put do a put a hidden camera somewhere in in her condo because they didn't live together. He lived on a farm. He was a blacksmith and lived on a farm. She uh, lives in a condo. Put you. I mean, there are all kinds of hidden cameras, nanny cams, and that sort of thing. There are tons yeah. of other things that you can do. Yeah. That's so the far. Murder would be <laughs> take <laughs> not pictures. on the top of it. Yeah, there has, yeah. Are there bruises? From, are there marks? Yes. Yes. Go take her to the ER, document the um, bruises and the mm-hmm. marks. Um, there's so many things that you can do other than just deciding to murder the other person. Have, what, po- what story could he possibly have told her that he would that you would not have proof of the abuse? Because if it's so bad that he really felt like he had to kill her and that was the only way to keep him from abusing her, Absolutely. there had to be marks left. There had to be... Something And as you read further in this story, the question is, number one, did she just want to believe yeah. him? Or number two, did she just make all this up? Because she's made up some stories too, yeah. and she's lied to police along the way. So we'll get into that a little bit later. For but sure. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, but there's, you know, if she, if this is even true, did she just want to believe it because she loved him so much? Or is she even making all this up? Right. Well, one way that she told police that he uh, gave her to... Um, a scenario that he was trying to get her to to carry out um, in order to be able to to kill Kelsey was to poison her by he wanted her to go and introduce herself as a new neighbor and take her a Starbucks coffee that she has poisoned with drugs that he provided. He gave her the drugs and it says she even went so far as to bring the drugs with her and went so far as to go and introduce herself to her. Not, I guess she was maybe trying to get her nerve up and she went and introduced herself, but she couldn't quite bring herself to actually bring the Starbucks, you know, laced with the poison, which I think is egregious. I how, Who could do that to a cup of Starbucks coffee? I am so appalled myself personally. <laughs> I cannot even believe. So anyway, I mean, it's it's hurtful. Also, the second unbelievable thing about that is no one could go to Starbucks and order me a Starbucks coffee and get it right, ever. You're never going to get that right. You're going to hand me that Starbucks coffee. I'm going to take it. I'm going to drink it. I, I would be poisoned and I would have died I'm, because it's Starbucks coffee. <laughs> but it's weird. Like I wouldn't want to go, I would not go buy a Starbucks coffee and take it no. to someone because- There are too many varieties. Too I many. mean, you go in there. Yeah. There's two. Yeah. There's, like, there's like, oh yeah. 500 varieties. Yeah. <laughs> I know. There's so many ways you can make coffee at Star or order coffee at Starbucks, which by the way, as an aside- I get so annoyed when I, I love Starbucks, but I always get so annoyed because whenever I go and order a coffee, it does not matter how I order it. They always repeat it back to me by correcting the way that I ordered it. And it drives me nuts. I'm just like, you guys, I just used the way that you corrected me with before, but that's not right. It's so annoying. So I always get sidetracked on stuff. And I recent I do change my coffee that I like there. So I recently started doing 2% uh, milk and Pike's Place coffee, like mixing them. And I'm like, I just want the 2% milk steamed and then like half and half that and the other half Pike's Place. And they're like, oh, you want a Misto? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I'll go with that. <laughs> so, so then I, the next time I went, I was like, okay, I'm going to act like I know what I'm doing. I'm like, I'll have a grande misto. And they're like, what kind of coffee do you want in that? I'm just like, go, I'm going to come over this counter. (laughs) (laughs) 
I want Pikes Place. I'm like, go. So it's a, and it, <laughs> So you're never going to get it right. Oh, it doesn't matter. Like, you can't say it right. You can't. I don't care what you call it, the cafe latte, they'll correct it to something else or they'll ask you another because question. Because they are smarter than us They're, when it comes to coffee. They know. They're the barista. <laughs> but I still like to be like, okay, next time I'm going to act like I know what I'm doing. And then I never, I always come across as the person standing there going, I don't know what the order. That's my husband, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't want to go to Starbucks. I don't know how to order coffee there. <laughs> anyway, I digress. I couldn't, I should have not, probably not even put the thing about Starbucks in here because I should have known that was going to get me off talking about Starbucks. <laughs> um, but she did back out of that um, whole scenario. She decided, I, I just can't do this. He wanted her to somehow beat her to death with a pipe. Um I, I don't get that. What what I don't get that. Wait a minute. If you can't if you can't poison somebody's coffee right. and hand them a coffee, but you can beat them to death with a pipe. Right. How? Yeah. How yeah. are you gonna if you don't have the nerve to do the coffee, you don't have the nerve to do the coffee. What would the make pipe, him think that she was even able physically to do that? Yes. That's just I don't know. This whole thing is so is very weird. Um to me. It seems a little off. I'm just going to go ahead and say, I'm not not saying, I'm just saying that mm-hmm. my gut is telling me that this whole story of him trying to put her up to killing his fiance and giving these, giving her these ideas, especially the idea with beating her to death with a pipe is coming across as a little unbelievable. Yes. And again, she's made some things up right. before, so we're not sure. She's trying to save her own butt right now. Well, sure, sure. So on Thanksgiving 2018, Kelsey Barrett turned up missing. And her family, of course, was, they're worried. It's Thanksgiving Day, and they don't know where she is. They know, her family knows that she would not leave her daughter. They know that she would not just disappear without a trace. I think police, they suspect, the family suspected Patrick. Now, I don't, I, I'm sure that someone who is, is, who ends up as we're going to find out, does some of the things that Patrick did. He had to have shown that side of him, even if, even mildly at some point. So I'm sure there was a reason why they were, they suspected him, but they, the police, I guess, made them wait 10 days before they started searching for her, which is crazy. They somehow just thought because she was a pilot that she could have gotten an airplane and flew away. That makes, that's stupid. What in the world? I don't, I don't think American Airlines, you, you just like take one of their planes and yeah. go off for a while. Yeah. She just got in an airplane, <laughs> flew, well, she knows how to fly. So that's probably what she did. She just flew away somewhere for some reason, 10 days, which is crazy to me. And then um, on December 21st, 2018, they arrested Patrick Frazee for murder. And so it became very obvious to everyone. The, new, the media, her family, everyone knew there was definitely something that's come up that gave them the right to be able to go and arrest him because they clearly had some sort of evidence or reason to believe that he was involved in her disappearance. No, I never read this part, Tina. Did they ever find a body? No, I don't think they ever did find a body. But as it uh, turns out, what was going on is Crystal, the nurse, and our nurse, she was cooperating with the police. 
So she's involved in this whole scenario. And you know how that goes whenever there's more than one person involved in a crime. Whichever one comes first to the police and starts talking, they're going to get a lighter sentence. They're going to be give because they're going to turn on the other person. And now the other person is the focus of the really, you know, hard time. And the person that's singing like a canary is going to get off a little lighter. And in her case, it's kind of unbelievable. But Crystal is saying is telling the police that after she refused several times to follow through on all of his murder schemes, that he decided to just take it, you know, matters into his, his own hands. And Patrick called her up one day and said that he he admitted to killing Kelsey. He told her that he went over to her condo and convinced her somehow that he was doing playing this little game where they were trying to he was going to have her try to figure out what scent these different candles are i imagine something like you know the fall candles that come out at bath and body works people get so excited about those yes they do smell good and they have all these different ones and so he convinced her like cover your eyes with this blindfold he used a sweater and wrapped it around her face so that she couldn't see. And she thought she was going to be smelling these different candles and be like, you know, this is country apple or this is, you know, pumpkin spice. And instead, he hit her in the head so hard with a baseball bat that it knocked out her teeth. It knocked out four of her teeth. And then he beat her to death with that baseball bat. The mother of his daughter, of his one-year-old little girl, and this woman that he had just had obviously trusted him enough to put a blindfold on that they were comfortable enough with each other that she would have not thought anything of doing that and playing this little game. And somehow he has it in him to be able to just beat her to death in this situation. It's absolutely bone chilling and just horrifying to me. And you really have to, I mean, I feel bad for her and for her family, what she went through. I can't imagine somebody that you trust that much and that they have that much hatred. I mean, he really had that much hatred for her. It wasn't like they were in a fight. It wasn't your traditional domestic violence where you're having a fight and things get out of hand or this was, let's have a romantic evening and smell candles together. And it turned into him beating her to death with a bat. It's so hard for me to imagine someone being able to do that. This guy is... Well, and this is the story, okay, this is obviously allegedly, because this is the story that Crystal told the police that Patrick told her. So she is saying, this is what he told me. He called me on the phone and told me this is what he did. And then she got in the car and she got in someone else's car, right? You said that you saw in another story, yeah, she had borrowed a friend's car. Mm-hmm. So obviously she knew that this wasn't like they weren't, she wasn't going there for a date. Oh, yeah. She was going there to do something and she needed to hide the fact that she was going right. there. So she borrows her friend's car and drives from Twin Falls, Idaho over to Denver. I don't know where, either, I know where Denver is. But I don't know. <laughs> I barely know where the whole state of Idaho is on the map. <laughs> I know. So I'm not sure how long of a drive that is, but it sounds pretty far to me. It's, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know. I guess I'm, 
I'm thinking it's something like, I th- I beca- and the reason I say this is, um, I think they said something like 600 miles or something like that. That's a long way. That's a long time. That's kind that of a long, long time. Yeah, that's a long distance relationship, I guess, that they were in. But she drove all the way there. And she says that she helped clean the condo. That She said there was blood everywhere when she got there. And she helped clean it up. There were... There was blood on toys. There was blood on curtains, the walls, everything. And the thing is, we've been watching Forensic Files and CSI and all of these things for decades now. We know how almost impossible it is to hide blood evidence and in, a, in a crime scene like this. So I don't even know why they bothered, really, but she helped him clean that condo. He put, she says, and this is, of course, this is all her version of the story. She says, he put Kelsey's body into a duffel bag and then they took her body out to his ranch and then they burned her in a water trough. They burned her body there. And I believe that they disposed, um, just disposed of, of the ashes and remains, you know, in just in the garbage, which... It's, I mean, it's bad enough. It's, it's some, sometimes you think of something like that and that just sounds, it just sounds horrible. Like you don't even want to say it out loud. It sounds so bad. But look at what he did. I mean, it's just these people. Yeah, this isn't a person with a conscience. No. If this is true and what Kelsey, or in what Crystal says he did to Kelsey is true, it's unimaginable. It seems like early on from some of the hearings and the motions from the defense that he, Patrick, is going to say that Crystal is the one who planned and committed the murder. So he's going to kind of turn it back on her. At some point, he tried to get some evidence thrown out where he had said to a social worker that Kelsey was abusive to his daughter. So he actually did talk to a social worker at one point, and he told the social worker that Kelsey had been abusive to his daughter. And I believe this is after her disappearance. So um, he's trying to set some sort of, who knows why he would have said what he said. But the defense is saying, well, we need to get that statement thrown out because they don't want even any hint of there being a motive for him to have killed her. So, you know, you had said, well, there's no evidence that he actually did accuse. This, This is Crystal's account. But if that evidence comes in that he also said that to the social worker, that's proof that he really was saying that Kelsey was abusive to their daughter. And that gives him motive to do all of this stuff. Right, right. It sounds all the, so the crystal has a lot of motive too. She's the just lover or the other person. And, you know, we don't know what was really being said. He might've said he's going to go through, you know, they were engaged. And so- You know, we don't know what really went on. Unfortunately, we weren't there. But there's a lot of of things up in the air in this one, a lot of questions, more questions than answers. There really are. I mean, we we know that she was murdered and one of the two of them did it. Yeah, and they're definitely, they're pointing fingers at each other. There is one thing. So, you know, you would think that for him to be able to do something like this, he, it it sounds like he was a monster. So you would think- Surely there was evidence that he had this in his personality before this happened. 
that you couldn't just, like you said, he, it wasn't like a just impulsive thing that he just got angry, lost his temper, accidentally killed her, you know, killed her in, in a fit of rage. This was premeditated. It was planned out if it happened the way Crystal said it did. And so you got to wonder how did this not, how did this part of his uh, personality not come out before? Well, when their baby was born just a year before, the hospital staff says that the baby had some complications during birth and they were not they were not allowing them to keep the baby in the room overnight and it made him so mad he got so angry with the hospital staff that they called social services because of the way he was acting and had them investigate the possibility that Kelsey was being was in an abusive relationship they were concerned that she was being abused and maybe she was we don't know. I mean, whatever his actions were at that time in the hospital when that baby was born, the hospital staff was concerned enough to call social services and have it investigated because they're concerned about the mother. It's one thing to call social, to call the security and be afraid for yourself as a staff member um, because sometimes families get, they're just, you know, emotions run high and they can be intimidating. Right. You know, and hospital staff is, is like, you know, I, I, he might hit me or... But they were afraid because of his behavior that he was being abusive to Kelsey. So I'm th- I'm thinking there had to be something he was doing, saying, act some way he was acting that gave them some kind of feeling that something is not yeah. right about this. And, and when you go through the training, you know, as a nurse, sometimes you go through that training and it's like if they won't let them answer questions yeah. for themselves, if they won't let them be in the room by themselves with the care, you know, with the hospital personnel. Yeah. So there are some signs that we can look for for that. The other interesting thing is that Crystal, I'm trying to make sure I get Crystal and Kelsey. I know, the so two Crystal, names are so similar. <laughs> yes. So Crystal had claimed at some point that she was abused. That's the reason she did this and helped mm-hmm. him clean up because she was afraid of him. But while you were talking, I Googled it and it's a 10 hour drive. So it's not like this guy's just going to show up at her doorstep. It's a 10 hour drive. He'd have to be so mad at her for not helping clean up. You know, in, in, in her story, she says, well, he called me to help clean up. And the reason I did it and the reason that she also what, drove around with the cell phone and was texting, making it look like Kelsey was still alive. And the reason that she was doing this supposedly is because she was so afraid of him. But yet she drove 10 hours to be with somebody that she's afraid of. Mm. That doesn't quite make sense to me. No. no, it really doesn't. Seems like she was more of a willing participant in all of this than she wants to let on. Well, I think that, and when you could, and when you could, this this actually, he's going to go to trial in October. This hasn't even gone to uh, to trial yet for him. She has already pled guilty to tampering with evidence, um, and in court admitted that she took crystals. Oh goodness, I knew I was going to say the wrong. I knew I was going to say the wrong name. <laughs> Kelsey's, Kelsey's cell phone. Right. She admitted in court that she took Kelsey's cell phone and drove it like 600 miles away and used it to try to throw them off so that they would be like, well, she's still texting people. She's still communicating with her cell phone. She, she's got to be alive somewhere. And that, that also may have played into why they waited for 10 days before they would allow for her to be considered a missing person. And so she pled guilty to tampering with evidence and to help us, you know, helping him clean up a crime and hide a, whatever, you know, hide the crime, cover it up. And she is facing, I don't think they've sentenced her yet. She's facing probation 
up to three years in prison for her role in the death of Kelsey Barrett, even though she obviously knew that he was planning to kill her. And even if you, even if she had nothing to do with her death, and if, if she didn't even want her dead, but she, he, he was the one planning everything, she obviously knew that he was planning this, and she knew that she could have saved her life. She could have Right. She could have prevented it. She could have went to the police and said that he is trying to get me to kill this girl. He could have, she could have done, let's put it this way. She would be alive today if, if Crystal had spoke up. It does seem that way. And Kelsey is, it's, it seems like that when she testifies next month at his trial, it's, I think that there's speculation that she's going to say that she was afraid of him. She that he actually threatened her and she was afraid for her own life and that's the only reason that she didn't come forward and say anything and that she helped him clean up the crime scene and helped him hide the evidence and 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 do all of the things that she did um because she was so afraid But if of him. you're afraid of him if you're that afraid of him and you live 10 hours away, you could call the police in the town where he lives and say he's wants to kill his girlfriend. And then you could call the girlfriend and let her know. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that she could have done, even if she was afraid, because if he's in jail, he can't hurt her. So if she was that afraid, the safest place for him to be would have been in jail. Oh. And I think that if she really thought that this was going on, and I don't know, we just we only know her side of the story at this point. And until the trial, we won't know his side of the story. But it'll be interesting to see how those two sides come together, or if they do come together. Clearly... At some point, they were in a relationship. One, either one um, of them or both wanted Kelsey out of the picture and plotted and had and went through with it. All they have turned on each other. So um, that we do, that much we know. It was one or the other of them. And, um, and who knows whether or not we'll ever know what really happened because clearly they're not going to. It's kind of hard to, um, you can't believe them, right? <laughs> yes, I I have to agree with you there, yes. So I guess we can start talking about our good nurse uh, for this week. And she really is an amazing person. This story is probably one of the most heartwarming stories that I've heard in a long time, just because of all the amazing things that she has done. This is Naja Bazi, and I apologize. I'm <laughs> sure I butchered that name. I'm just sure of it. But hopefully it's somewhere close, but it's spelled N-A-J-A-H, and the last name is B-A-Z-Z-Y. And she is actually a CNN hero. And um, and so the this article on hometownlife.com, it sort of tells about how she was selected and why she was selected to be one of CNN's heroes. And it says that there were approximately 40,000 nominations that they reviewed and then selected like something like 20. But when you hear what she does, you understand why. Absolutely. She, of course, she says she's not a hero. Um, And a a lot of people who are the type of people to do things like that say that because that's not why they're doing it. They don't want that kind of recognition. They're really doing it because they they just want to help people. And so uh, she's no different than that. But 
the fact is she really, she really yeah, she's is. She's just an amazing person. Mm-hmm. So what ha- kind of happened with her, she, back in 1996, um, was working as a nurse. She was a critical care nurse. And an uh, Iraqi refugee family was in the, I guess, neonatal, neonatal intensive care. The, this family had had twins. One of the twins had already passed away. And then the other one was on life support. And the family did not want to remove the, the baby from life support. And they were obviously just, you know, adamant about that. But the hospital, I guess there was some sort of law that said that the hospital or the physicians were able to make the decision that basically there was no chance for survival. And therefore, they chose to remove um, the baby from life support and then send send the baby home with its with its family. And so she, the nurse actually went to their home, I guess, to sort of check on him or just see how they're doing and see, just to see what, what all was uh, going on there. And she said when she got there, that was her first glimpse of poverty. She said they had absolutely nothing. There wasn't a refrigerator. There wasn't a stove. There wasn't a crib. They had the baby in a laundry basket. They had clean white towels under them. The towels still had the um, tags on them. And she was just devastated by what she saw. And she decided that uh, from that moment on, she was going to try to do something to help people like this, which I think is so admirable. You know, so many people so many people would be moved by that situation and maybe even choose to do something to help that particular family. And what I feel like is so interesting is that she not only chose to help that family, but she decided to basically change the world and start helping hundreds of thousands of people. So they... um she created, she started this uh, organization called Zaman. It's spelled Z-A-M-A-N, International. It's a nonprofit organization and it, it, it supports impoverished women and children of all sorts of backgrounds in the Detroit area because this was in Michigan. And it's helped more than 250,000 people. It's a lot of people. It's just almost unbelievable when you think about one person, one nurse, you know, one critical care nurse, how many people have probably thought, I would love to be able to change people's lives. I would love to be able to help people, but I'm just one person. And look at what she's done since 1996 when all of that, you know, when that happened and she kind of had that realization. So um, I think it actually said that she left her job as a nurse to start this organization. Mm-hmm. So she gave up a, a comfortable career a comfortable job so that she could help other people. Yeah, that's right. She actually um, did a couple of other, there's some other things that she did. One of the things that she did was about 20 years ago, she was doing a presentation at a public hospital and a Catholic nurse came up to her and started talking to her and said, there's something I, I want you to see. And she went down to the hospital's pathology lab and showed her that there were 200 baby 
fetuses in the room. And it was very dramatic. And it said that um, if or if that hospital had been a faith-based hospital, there would have been a protocol to work from. But it was a public hospitals, and it was a public hospital, and so there were restrictions, I guess, on what they could do. So these babies apparently were born to parents who couldn't afford to bury them, and uh, either that or they filled out paperwork but didn't do it correctly, or they didn't even know there was paperwork to be filled out. So they felt like I guess they these parents had no choice, and so when she realized this. She founded an organization called Plots for Tots. And it was also a not-for-profit organization that aids grieving and poverty-stricken parents with the burial of their babies. It's so sad to me to think that that, that has to even be a thing. It's, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, it is expensive to bury someone. And um, these people just had to go through the loss of a baby and... And they don't have the money to be able to bury it and they have to leave it at the hospital. Um, Bazzi herself, she has four children. She's a mom. And she says that even before this, she remembers, you know, that whole incident that happened with that family, the Iraqi family, that it sort of sparked her desire to start helping people. And it's so interesting to me. It seems like she's just spent the past several decades finding different ways to help people. So it started out just a van. I guess she just got a van and started gathering up things and started helping people. And that turned into, over time, a non-profit organization with a $2 million annual budget, 6,000 volunteers, and over 400 businesses that contribute on a regular basis. That's what she built. That's amazing uh, to think that one nurse nurse. can do that. And just think of how many lives she impacts every single year. Yeah, she was just determined. And then sometimes that's all it takes is determination because she started having these philanthropic dinners, so like these formal dinners and having uh, different, I guess, wealthy sort of families who would be able to afford to donate to organizations like this. And there she met uh, some people like Dentist, I think, and some other companies who were willing to put forward a a substantial amount of money to help her. And I think that what happens a lot of times is people like Miss Bazzi, they they are willing to actually step up and do the work. And people like that, that are willing to actually put their thoughts and their desires into action and actually, you know, really, truly help people. Those people are so few and far between that if someone that has a lot of money and resources comes across someone like that, they want to fund it because they say, you know, they see the, the, the good that, and the, the potential for all of the good that that person can do. And that's what happened in this case. I think that they saw her desire and her passion to help people and they funded, they helped to fund her. And so over the years, it's just grown into this amazing, um, work that's being done. Yeah. And not only does she just, she doesn't just give handouts. She has classrooms where she teaches them because her goal is to end poverty for these people. She wants to get end the poverty cycle. So she doesn't just give them a handout. She, she gives them food and she has a food pantry and furniture. And, but she also has classrooms and they have social workers And it said there for when they first, when somebody first comes in, they ask them, what is your hope for today? 
And for some of these, it's just to have a bed for their child to sleep in or a meal for their child so they can give them a coupon to get some food from the pantry. But then after that, they work with them to see how, you know, after they meet that immediate need, then they start looking at, okay, what can we do to get you out of this cycle of poverty? It's, yeah, it's amazing what she does. They, they can come in, they basically tell, I guess they kind of tell them their story and then they're given vouchers and they can just go through this huge warehouse and shop for, for the groceries that they need and be able to feed um, their children, feed their family. And like you said, it's not only just giving them food, it's also providing a means for them to get out of poverty, which is, to me, just, that's really the answer for combating poverty. It's helping people figure out how to get themselves out, like giving, not just like, well, you'll figure it out, you know, but actually giving them the tools and the resources, helping them where they are, and then giving them tools and resources that they can use then to um, to move out of that. Uh, because it's so hard for people in that cycle to get out of it on their own. So that's really, um, that's our good nurse story for this week. And I am so proud of of uh, Naja and all of the work that she's done. She gave up um, a very stable and secure income as a critical care nurse to go and um, put all of her time into this organization. And it's paid off for all these poverty-stricken women who've been through abusive situations and um I just think it's amazing all of the all of the hundreds of thousands of people that she's helped over the years. So we definitely want to honor her and I'm so proud that I'm proud to, she's she makes us all proud to be nurses. Yeah, for this sure. is a great good news story. Very good. Oh, it's wonderful. So that will wrap it up for us. I want to remind you guys uh to go um well first of all I would like for uh, Deanna to let you guys know where you can find her and her um, educational resources on case management in case anybody's interested in doing yeah, that. Yeah, so um, this good news story is actually talks a lot about social determinants of health, like if people don't have food, if they don't have a place to live, um, if they don't have furniture in their house. You know, people aren't worried about managing their diabetes or their health conditions when they are, they're too worried about how they're feeding their family for the next day. So... That's what, in case management, we call the social determinants of health. That's like a new buzzword that's out right now. But it's something that we do every day. So when I look at her story, I kind of think of her as almost working like a case manager. She's taking these people, she's finding out what's wrong and what their problems are, and how can she meet their needs so that they can take care of themselves. So if anybody is interested in becoming a case manager, learning more about case management, like we said at the beginning, this is case management week. So my goal is to raise awareness about the great work that case managers do and inspire those nurses that may want to become case managers because we are an aging workforce. We're actually a little grayer than the nurses on average. So I want to make sure there's good case managers out there when we need them. So if anybody's interested, they can go to casemanagementinstitute.com slash good nurse. And we will have some resources there. Um, We have a, a little fact sheet on the qualities and traits that make a good case manager so that you can see if this is something that you might be interested in. Awesome. And we'll put a little link uh, on the website for you guys. So you can, if you want to just go to uh, goodnursebadnurse.com, if you can't remember the name of it, then you can just click on the link from there. 
and I promise I will. Uh, well, Mark will do that because I'll tell him to. But sometimes I tell. I sometimes I say things are going to go on the website, and then I forget to send them to him. But this <laughs> this is going to be easy for him to find, so that won't be a problem. <laughs> Sorry, guys. One time he thought it was so funny to um, put funny pictures of me on the website in place of the content that I said I was going to give him to put on there. That is kind of funny. Yeah, and one of them was a picture. In fact, it may still be on there. Is a picture of me um, at the hair salon, and I was getting my hair done, and I sent him a snap, like just a picture of myself, like with all the foils in your hair. Oh my goodness! He's awful. So everybody should go look. Of course, I don't know. They should how to... all go look really quick before yeah. he takes it down, or you make him take it down. I know. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Um, well, I want you guys to have a good week and go come and see us at uh, goodnursebadnurse.com on our website. Um, give us a shout out on Facebook or Instagram at GMBN Podcast or Good Nurse Bad Nurse Podcast. And I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, shoot us an email if you have any ideas for stories or just want to tell us a personal story um, that you have. We'd just love to hear from everyone. And I also want you to remember, please, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Thank you.